heard a loud bang noise and I saw my mum get up out of the bed we were in and she walked over to the door and I just thought whatever it was mum's taking care of it and I laid back down and then I heard another loud big bang and that really made me jump so I jumped out of my sleep and I was fully alert and I just saw my mum laying on the floor and this man towering over her with a gun in his hand. When my mum passed, my dad said to me one day, Lee, my mum's name was Cherry, but he called her Sherry. And he goes, Lee, Sherry saved my life. And I've never heard him say that before. So I said to him, what do you mean by that? And he said, what woman do you know would be in bed with a man, hear a noise and not nudge the man to go and see what the noise is? He goes, your mum got up herself to go and investigate what that noise was. And if it was me that day, I would, I would probably not have been here. Even if I had to self-publish, it was something that I was thinking about doing. And I felt one day our story needs to be told. Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And today... Yeah? I thought you were going to tell us... <laughs> <laughs> Are we a bit tired today? Done that boy band thing and we've done that boy band thing. I'm Phil and I'm Natalie and we're... <laughs> Oh, how, who was your best that you used to do that with? Do you remember like uh, back in the day doing it with S Club 7? That was quite yeah. a trial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think seven of them was probably the reason why that was a trial rather than the individuals. I yeah, think exactly. Any, anything Don't over get me three. wrong. I love an S Club party. <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> anything over three members. I, I think I had to do it quite a few times with Busted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, McFly. I'm thinking, come on, lads. There's only three of you. Oh, such good memories. Love all of those <laughs> bands. I just want to... I just want to go watch loads of videos of that. No, don't do that. Just like stay listening to our podcast. It's going to be great. Yeah. Because... You just want to go to the year 3000. <laughs> oh, don't. If there's a pun, you will always go there, won't you? <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. So today on Bestsellers, uh, we're going to be talking about boy bands. No, we're not. We're going to be talking uh, about a really incredible book, actually, that, if I'm honest, was one of those that I was a bit uh, trepidatious. Is that a word? It is now. Um, of reading only because I knew that it might be quite emotional because it is Lee Lawrence's memoir about what his life has been like since at the age of 11 he witnessed his mum being shot um, in a dawn raid in his own house. By the Metropolitan Police. Correct. You should add. Yeah um, I, I didn't have that um, same sense of trepidation that you had because I, although I didn't know Lee and had not interviewed Lee before, I knew the events and I mm -hmm. just couldn't wait for a first-hand account, really, of what had gone on. And I think, um, well, you'll tell us this conversation progresses, but given that these events were, were 1981, I think it's fair, as you listen to this, to ask yourself, has anything much changed in 2020? Uh, because these some of the events that took place are just as prescient about now as they were back in the day. So something to think about while you uh, listen to this in a moment. Uh, listeners where we didn't think we would have them. Now, I quite like going to this. So we're on our host Acast, they do you a country by country breakdown. If you go to the bottom of the list, that's where the fewest numbers are. I quite like going Which to the bottom. Which is also like masochistically where we like to go. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> Just Anyway, I've, um, and this is your challenge, Natalie Jameson. Okay. We have one listener in Reunion. Now, I just thought Reunion was one of those 
80s summer shows that can't happen at the moment. I was going to say, to be honest, I'm still like in the uh, pop band yeah. <laughs> reunion space. Where are we going? Yeah. Um, yeah it's not really my uh, strong point, but thanks to our friend Google, um, I have just looked up Reunion, which I believe is an island in the Indian Ocean. Um, Amazing. So when you click on yeah. Reunion here, it says that the region of it that our listener is in is Saint-André. So is that, I presume we're in French Polynesian territory, are we? Yeah, looks like it. Between 24 and 27 hours to get there, if you fancy it. Uh, to be honest, I think a lot of people <laughs> right now would think that, yeah, going somewhere else uh, that's different from the four walls you've been staring at for the last six months would be great. Yeah, um, yeah no, it sounds lovely. It looks very pretty. Uh, yeah. Saint-Denis looks like it's the capital. Official language is French. My French is so-so. As long as I can get a croissant, it's all good. Oh, there's a wow, place. there we go. There's go a on. place there called Le Tampon. Who is that? Yeah. I'm now intrigued. Oh, please don't say that. But all the jokes in my head, go away, go away. None of them are sayable. <laughs> go away. <laughs> no. Not. Ooh, in the early 20th, this again, according to Wikipedia, in the early 20th century, the town of Le Tampon mm. was the base for the murderer and sorcerer Citarain. Never heard of him. No. He was a thief and a murderer on the island of Reunion. Mm, okay, yeah, we should. Good. Yeah, it is, but I should probably move away from this and bring us back on yeah, track yeah, okay. to uh, the focus of today's episode. Well, before you do that, before yeah. you do that, let's just say that if you are the one listener in Saint-André listening to this and you can give us some more Le Tampon facts, then bestsellerspodcast <laughs> at gmail.com for future episodes, please. Bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. So go on then, back to today's episode, Natalie James. And we are going to be chatting all about The Louder I Will Sing, which is the book written by Lee Lawrence. And here's an earlier Phil to tell you a bit more about it. Our guest on today's bestsellers has written a book for you to read, which is a hugely important book, and it's about his mum. And I would tell you, as a journalist of some 25 years standing, that his mum was shot in a dawn raid by the Metropolitan Police, which led to the Brixton riots. The author of the book would tell you that his mum was shot in a dawn raid by the Metropolitan Police, which led to the Brixton uprising. And so I'll introduce you to Lee Lawrence, and then we can have that conversation. How are you doing? Welcome to Bestsellers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, as I said, it's a hugely important book, this, because... I think you and I are exactly the same age, Lee, actually. And so um, I don't really remember the Brixton riots massively. But what I do remember as a boy in Birmingham going to school in Aston was that the Handsworth riots spilled over into Aston. And we all, we all had to gather into the main school hall one Wednesday afternoon because bricks and petrol bombs were being thrown into the school courtyard. And none of the teachers, my memories, that could really explain why this was happening, but they had to make sure we could get home safely. And that was my first taste of what was going on as a result of what happened to your mum. Your memories are obviously much more stark because you were there when she was shot. So before we get into that level of detail, I just wonder if you could explain to people listening how it felt to have to relive that now as an adult for the purposes of this book. Um, it, It was challenging for me. And I felt like every time we were going through this process of getting everything down, it, was, it could be emotionally draining. I remember after every session, just feeling like I wanted to go to my bed and, <laughs> and lay down and sleep, basically. Um, but also, it, it was 
it was like therapy for me too. So there was a there was a still an undercurrent of strength that came from telling the story, telling the story from our perspective, telling the story not only from a place of a victim, but as a place of strength in terms of what we was able to overcome. So it was a combination, I would say, and, and it was a roller coaster of emotions that I had to go through to, to, to do the book, but it was worth it. So I'm intrigued by the process of how the writing of this book came about. So if we can get onto that in a second, but can you just, um, obviously Phil's kind of, and you've laid out the, the context for this, but I'd love it if you could just explain exactly what happened when you were a kid and the impact of that event that has had on your entire life. So I will, I was told a story through the eyes of an 11 year old at that time. And it was a Sunday morning, 7 a.m. On a, sorry, a Saturday morning, 7 a.m. We'd fallen asleep in my mum's room from the night before because we was up late watching TV, which would be a normal for us on a, on, a, on a Friday night, basically. So I heard a loud bang noise and I saw my mum get up out of the bed that we were, all, we were in and she walked over to the door. And I just thought, whatever it was, mum's taking care of it. And I laid back down. And then I heard another loud, big bang at this, this, this time. And that really made me jump. So I jumped out of my sleep and I was fully alert. And I just saw my mum laying on the floor and this man towering over her with a gun in his hand, just shouting at her saying, where's Michael Gross? Where's Michael Gross? And I just got hysterical. I was just, I've never felt that kind of rage before and even after that situation in my whole entire life. So it was the first time I'd witnessed anything so horrific. So I was screaming, I was shouting, and this man just turned around and pointed his gun towards me and said, someone better shut this effing kid up. And it was almost like he was annoyed at the fact that I was screaming and shouting, but you just shot my mum, basically. And did you know at this point he was a police officer? At this point, only when he turned around and pointed his gun to me and said, someone better shut this kid up. It was only in that moment, for, so everything slowed down. And I realised that this was a police officer. And I saw the fear in my, my dad was in the room at the time as well. And I saw the fear in his face. And he came over and he was saying, Lee, calm down. Like he was almost frightened that this, I could get shot by this man. So um, my mum was laying on the floor and she was just saying that she, she couldn't breathe and she couldn't feel her legs. And she thought she was going to die in that moment. And... Um, it was just, it was like a nightmare. It was mayhem, it was chaos in the house. We got ushered out of the room. There was about 30 police officers with guns, dogs, and it just felt like an invasion on our home. Um, we were left in the living room while my mum was being attended to in the bedroom. I broke, I fought myself back into the room and I saw her bleeding and I said to the, to the, to, to the, to the man, what's, you know, what's happened to my mum? And he says to me, 
she just got a graze. And I said, if, if she's just got a graze, why is she bleeding so much? And at that point, he tried to rush me out of the room again when he started to realize I could see what was happening. My mum later on went into the ambulance. She gave us a little wave as she was going into the ambulance to try and reassure us because we, as the children, we were just screaming and, 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 and crying and sobbing. And yeah, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. And that just shows the character of, of, of the person of my mum, where even though she had just got shot and she weren't sure she was even going to live, she still found it in herself to try and reassure us with a smile and a wave. So that kind of shows the character of the person that she was. Um, in the house at the time, I was 11. My sister, Sharon, who was in the room, was 13. My sister, Lisa, was in the living room. She was eight. My mum was looking after two children that day who were seven and two years old. And my sister, Juliet, who was 21 and six months pregnant, was upstairs. So that moment just changed our life forever, basically. The, the crowds turned up at the house and, you know, they were asking questions, weren't getting any answers. That turned into frustration. They marched up to the Brixton police station, still weren't getting any answers. And then before you knew it, you know, that erupted to what we know as the Brixton, 1985 Brixton riots, which you rightfully say I call an uprising. And we should explain, you mentioned the name Michael Gross. That's your brother. That's who police were looking for. That's correct. And, and why the armed response in the search for your brother? So they were originally looking for him in, in connection to a, a, a robbery that took place in Hertfordshire, um, which he was later on acquitted from. Um, but there was also an incident which had took place earlier on that arose, or something it was two days before that, they came to my house where when police officers went to an address to look for him for in connection with that um, with, with, with that uh, robbery, he apparently um, produced a, a, a gun. But they had sent a message out saying that he had shot off the police officers, which weren't true. And then that's why they ended up coming to our house in the way that they did. And there's one more extraordinary detail of that night for me as a reader, which I didn't know until I read your book, which is that once your mum has been taken away to hospital via ambulance, all the children are left there and they have family liaison officers, but you're allowed to stay there and sleep there. And a press photographer comes in. Yeah, that's the bit I was going to mention too. So you've, in the space of a couple of hours, you've had a gun pointed at you and a camera. Yeah, they lined us up on the sofa, basically, like they were taking a, a portrait of us and was just clicking away, clicking away, clicking away. Um, while we were all just distressed and didn't even know what was going on. I just thought that was fascinating as well, because there are obviously so many shocking elements to your story and you rightly detail uh, your very lengthy fight for justice for your mum, Cherry Gross, but that particular point of the media intrusion into your life at that incredibly vulnerable time of your life absolutely stayed with me. I cannot imagine. There's so much, obviously, of the story that I can't imagine. I'm white, you're black. But that they allowed a photographer into your house 
and lined up kids and took your picture and then the papers printed that photo i you know it's not something i'm going to go searching for it's not a photo i want to see because it just feels so intrusive and and i just wonder how damaging that has been to you so i still have that i've got a clipping of that that same photograph that was taken by the press um that day and it felt for us like we were in a zoo and they just lined us up and were just you know looking at us as if we were objects basically or just animals and, and it was sad because as i said to you we was already we were already distressed um we really thought that it felt like the house was just being invaded my mum is gone my dad's gone so there's there's no adults left in the house and now we've just got these strangers coming in and it feels like they're just coming in to 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 kind of just have a look at you basically and 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 take advantage of your vulnerability you write in the book that um and this is your phrase it's not my phrase that that your mum effectively took a bullet for your dad can you just elaborate on that and i think in fact it was something your dad said to you as well wasn't it that's right. So, um, and I think it's important to also mention that my brother was not in the house and he never lived with us either. So He hadn't been dad, there for about three months, had he? You hadn't seen him for several months. That's correct. So my dad was in, in the house and when my mum passed, my dad said to me one day, um, Lee, because he called, my mum's name was Cherry, but he called her Sherry. He always, he always pronounced her name Sherry and he goes, Lee, Sherry saved my life. And I've never heard him say that before. So I said to him, what do you mean by that? And he said, what woman do you know would be in bed with a man, hear a noise and not nudge the man to go and see what the noise is? He goes, your mum got up herself to go and investigate what that noise was. And if it was me that day, I would, I would probably not have been here. So as far as he's concerned, if he was standing there as a male, they may have been able to justify shooting my dad because they would have said, well, they're looking for black male and he's a black male standing up there. And he probably wouldn't have been one shot, it may have been two or three. Mm. Um, I'd quite like to hear a bit of the book at this point, if you're ready, Phil. And um, we should mm -hmm. say that um, Phil's gonna read a section of, of uh, Lee Lawrence's book, because Lee's dyslexic and uh, he is more comfortable having somebody else read for him. So um, we've elected to do it that way, which is fair to say, Lee? Yes, it's fair to say. Uh, and also um, Lee's had a hand in, in helping us to choose this passage. And um, I asked him which bit he'd like us to read. And he was telling us before we started talking to you that the book is really there for his mum, for Cherry. And that is the most important element. So whilst you get all these strands about the battle with the Metropolitan Police that we'll touch on in more detail later on, which spans 30 years, by the way, um, you really want to do justice to your mum's character. So the book's called Louder I Will Sing. And so the piece I've chosen from the preface is explains basically why you've, you came up with that title. So I hope I do this justice for you, Lee, okay. uh, right from the opening of your, of your book, Louder I Will Sing. A short opening roll of drums, then clipped stabs of guitar against an endless bass that seemed to rise and fall with hypnotic laid-back precision. Floating over the top, the feather-like female vocals began, I want to share your life. I looked at my sisters and grinned. Someone Loves You, Honey by J.C. Lodge was one of the records of the summer of 1982. 
Number one, back in Jamaica, every time you turn on a radio in Brixton, it seemed as though the same sweet lyrics and pulsating bass were there waiting for you, transporting you for a few fleeting moments away from South London towards sunnier climes. In front of the record player, Mum was starting to move. It was as though the richness of the reggae beat was rippling through her. Some people are born with a natural sense of rhythm. Mum was one of them. As she turned around, she gestured for the rest of us to join her. We didn't need a second invitation. Everyone was up on their feet, swaying and swinging in a circle around the coffee table. As the song reached the chorus we all knew so well, everyone started to sing along. The louder I sang, the more Mum smiled. It's fascinating watching you hear that as well, Lee. You seem to be drifting <laughs> off into your own <laughs> imagination or memories. Yeah, I mean, I remember that exact moment so clearly, you know, and uh, such a vivid memory of my mind. So I was right back in the living room around the coffee table with the, I could even picture the stereo and how my mum loved music and how that really um, bonded us as a family as well. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a, it's just a lovely moment to remember, and especially most of my mum's life that I can remember was spent in that wheelchair, um, in pain. And, um... Wow. wow. That is loud. <laughs> it's fine. These things happen when you're recording and working from home. So if somebody's yeah. doing some work nearby, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really loud, yeah. So, oh, oh, oh God. Is it all gone quiet over there? It's quiet over there. <laughs> it's fine. If it starts yeah. up again, we know that it's just something that happens in the neighbourhood. It's not a problem. Um, could you talk a little bit, Lee, about the process of, of writing this, how that happened? So the process of writing, I mean, the first time I ever thought about the book, it was really just, I, 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 there was a burning desire just to start jotting down my memories of what I could remember of everything that happened. And it was around the time, just the beginning of the inquest, that I started to say, I, I want to just start documenting things. So a friend of mine who, um, who had, had self-published a book before was just helping me to get things out of my head and on paper. So I had this sort of real raw document about my whole entire life. And it, it was something that I just thought I would just have and work on until the day that maybe I'm able to, you know, get, get, get a publishing deal or something. But I just wanted to know that I've started that process. And even if I had to self-publish, it was something that I was thinking about doing at the time. Um, but the inspiration comes from way before that. So when I was about, when I was a teenager, I would see things on TV talking, especially around Black History Month, talking about events that happened. They would talk in detail about the 1981 uprisings. But when it came to the 1985, when my mum was shot, there wasn't much information. It was almost like it didn't happen. So from there as a kid, I, I would, there was like a strong desire to have our story told. I thought it was important and I felt like one day it, it, our story needs to be told. So really this is, this is the opportunity and this is where it, it manifests itself. But there's always been, I say, a strong desire to just have our story heard. And especially from a personal 
perspective because we, we've always been reported on. So, um, and so that's somebody else's narrative on our lives and what's happened. Um, and I think it was very important for us to tell our story from our perspective, from a really personal, human, heart-to-heart perspective. And we've mentioned the dyslexia already. So how did, what about the actual process of getting the words from your head onto the page? How did that work? So I had a ghostwriter involved in the process. Um, so I'm very good at being able to communicate. My memory is, is, is good because I've had to rely on my memory throughout my life to, to help me cope with my dyslexia. So it was really about just having somebody who could get the stuff down on paper. And it was a collaborative um, process. So although I have dyslexia, which does slow me down when it comes to reading and, and, and writing, it's, I, I'm still somebody who pays attention to detail. So at every given point, I wanted to make sure that things were said in the right way, that, that all the detail was there, that things are correct, that it feels authentic and I can hear my voice. You know, that was, all these things were very important to me. So it was, it was a long process and at times frustrating because of my dyslexia. However, it was something that was so important to me that I, I threw myself into it and made sure I gave it the time that it deserved. I mean, I think it's, I read more fiction than I read nonfiction, but I think for a nonfiction book, this, your story has sort of two different narrative threads running through it. So there's a before thread um, leading up to the events that happened to your mum and then an after thread leading up to what happened with the inquest and your your ongoing fight for justice. But it's a proper page turner in how it's put together. And it really makes you think about obviously so many things, but sort of really want to keep following that story all the way through. Um, I'm interested as well how the publishing deal came about as well, because you were saying you were going to self-publish anyway so did you did you reach out to publishers or did publishers suddenly come knocking on your door after they heard about your story so i met someone um a lady called michelle girl she i and i we had a, got into a conversation and i said um you know i've got an idea for something and it'd be good to maybe just bounce it to see what you think so i told her about the about me and what i'd gone through and that i was trying to write a book so she introduced me to uh, my agents who are Blair Partnership. So I went in, had a meeting with them, told them the story, and they came back to me saying they want to take me on, and, and they were the ones who brokered a, a publishing deal for me on my behalf. And that's how that journey basically started. Did so you speak to Michelle Gale? Yeah. <laughs> yes. As in, your, your sweetness is my weakness. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Wow, that's great. So how did you meet her then? You know, through, through a mutual friend. Um, a friend of ours, it was their, it was their birthday, and we, and we met at the birthday celebration and just got into a conversation. And at that time, she was saying that she was working on, you know, a, a direction where she wanted to work on more meaningful projects and so on and so forth. So I, at that point, I thought, okay, it would be good to maybe just bounce this and see if you think this is something that has as I would say legs um, and she seemed you know she was very interested and cool and believed that you know it's a story worth telling and <laughs> thankfully <laughs> thankfully um, you know the 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 agents their partnership they they believed in it too and and here we are 
It's so, this is so British, by the way, what we're doing now, isn't it? Don't you think? It's such a British thing. Lee's pouring his heart out to us about the awful <laughs> events of his mum that he's catalogued in this book, and it's... <laughs> Sorry, mate, I've got to get the building done, isn't it? It's got to be done by Friday. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> only in Britain. Yeah. Only in Britain. Uh, that maybe leads on nicely too. I wanted to ask you about one of the things, one of the many things that struck me about your story uh, was that there's a calmness of the tone that runs throughout the book. And I found as a reader, there was so much of what you were saying that, you know, really fired me up and got me enraged about the unfairness and just some of the awful situations that happened to you. Yet throughout you have a perspective that is is quite remarkable, I think. And I, and I wondered where that calmness came from. So I will say my mum has always been my, my greatest inspiration and my hero for many reasons. One is when that thing happened, the way she dealt with that, we, we only could but follow suit. When we looked at my mum being disabled in that wheelchair, and that's the, the, the pain that she would go through on a day-to-day basis and how her life just changed so much as a result of that incident. You couldn't, she was like the example. So therefore, who were we to complain and moan that she was dealing with it in such a dignified way? So, so that's the first thing. Secondly, my role as a carer to my mum, I think really molded me. It, you know, being a carer, and I took that job really seriously, you have to be patient. You have to have some empathy. You have to have understanding. You have to be good at communicating and listening. And I feel some of those skills that we don't necessarily value, because we, we call them soft skills, um, I feel put me in good stead. So by the time my mum had passed in 2011, I felt ready. And I felt I'd been armed with all the tools that I needed to do whatever I needed to do next. So I would say part of it, I mean, a big part of it is my mum and, and, and who she was, as I say, and how she inspired me. And I would say there's, there's other parts of it that's probably um, authentically who I am. And that situation helped to bring that out um, even more so. Um, because I suppose we didn't really have a choice, really. It was sink or swim. Because you wrote this book for your mum and about your mum, tell us about your mum as you remember her. So what I mean by that is if someone mentions your mum to you and says the phrase, your mum, what's the first image? That comes in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I refer to my mum normally as she's, she was like a lioness to us. So my mum had this way about her. She was... She was, a, she was a small woman, small, small petite woman, um, but she commanded respect. So she had this kind of huge personality. She was a quietly confident person. And, you, you, you know, my mum was the kind of person you didn't really want to mess with because she would put you in your place. But the other side of her was she was so giving of herself. She was so kind, so generous. The amount of times I've seen my mum give her last money to somebody, the amount of times she's offered to um, take someone in who may have been falling in hard times, um, the amount of times that I see her do without, 
she will she will her shoes will be would be you know broken leaned you know and she will make sure if she got any money we she looked after us first and she took care of herself last so that was the kind of person that she was she also was full of wisdom she was somebody who was proud of who she was proud of her culture proud of being jamaican proud of her heritage as a, a maroon um, from Jamaica and, and contributed her strength to the fact that she was from that maroon lineage. So she was, she was, you know, very cultural, very spiritual, and um, and she had a sense of humour. So even in even in that wheelchair, you know, there were times when we would really, and when my mum laughed, she she would like beat the bed, like on her bed or beat her leg, because you know, or she would cry, you know, sometimes when she was laughing. So. You know, it was lovely to see those moments because it was it wouldn't be often because she was in so much difficulty and pain with, with, with you know being in the position that she was in. But when she when she when she when she was having fun or we was she was laughing, she would you know do it to the fullest. This book could so easily have, have been a catalogue of your family battle against the Met Police over a thirty year period. But you've chosen, because it's your book, it's your mum's story, but it's your book and your story in relation to your mum. You've chosen to put detail in for us, the reader, that you didn't need to share with us and that doesn't always reflect you in a good light. So I'd like to know what the decision-making process behind that. But before you answer that, let me explain some of that detail, such as your brother Michael, who they were looking for, coming to your house and taking you joyriding when you were just eight. Uh, you having to put your mum to bed on your own wedding night because Michael had reneged on his caring duties and you were her usual carer. You admitting to a, a short period of selling drugs. You saying you've been arrested 10 to 15 times. Uh, all of this stuff you could have chosen to admit, but you didn't. Why were you so giving? I was so giving because I wanted to give a full understanding. Um, so if we look at, there's a lot of young people today who have experience trauma in some way. So whether it's trauma through domestic violence, whether they witnessed um, maybe their friend being violently attacked or killed, um, or whether they've been abused or sexually abused or been put in care. And then what happens is you see certain behaviors play itself out and we only look at the end result and we don't necessarily dig deep enough to find out what, what happened to that person. What kind of childhood did that person have, which then will link to their behavior today? And I thought that happened with me. I felt like what I'd witnessed, what I'd gone through with no therapy, we went back to school two weeks later. I was disruptive in school because I didn't know how to deal with these, these emotions that I was going through. I had no one to talk to. So therefore, it played itself out in the way that I did things in, in my relationships, in, in my own anger issues that I had. So I wanted to give some context to that. And I feel for people to really truly understand, sometimes you have to expose yourself. So I know I didn't need to do it. And, you know, it was, I considered, considered that, you know, hard. I was thinking to myself, do I, do I do this because I don't need to expose myself in this way? But I said, I've got to think about the greater purpose. And one of my mantras throughout this whole journey has been the purpose outweighs the challenge. 
So any backlash that I may get for putting myself out in that way, the higher purpose of giving people a real rounded view and an understanding of how events like this can have an impact on, on a person, on a child, on the way, on the decisions that someone makes in their life will outweigh that for me. I'm, I'm prepared to do that. So has there been any backlash on you? But just before you answer that, would you mind just explaining um, the sort of the answer before you, you were talking about your mum's Jamaican heritage and that she's a maroon and you obviously explain in the book about, but just if people, if that's not a term that they didn't know before. So the maroons were essentially um, runaway slaves from in Jamaica who um, ran off into the mountains and what they did, they formed their own community and they fought back against the, the British and they won. And in the end, the British done a treaty with them where they would never, they would leave them alone. They gave them that land and allowed them to just get on with it. And um, so therefore, even now in Jamaica, there's a, the, the leader of the Maroons was a, a, a lady called Nanny, Nanny Maroon. And they would have, uh, you know, she's a national hero. She, she's, she's been on the money in Jamaica. So therefore, as I said, my mum will contribute her strength. She would always draw upon that and say, that's who I am. That's where I'm coming from. And that's what I could feel helped her fight through. I mean, she had a life expectancy of 10 years and she lived for 26 years. So it just goes to show the strength of her character. Definitely. And so you were just saying before then as well, was there any backlash to how open you've been in this book from any sector? So I haven't had any backlash other than the fact that um, things I have to think about is my children will probably read my book and there may be things that they've never been exposed to that they're going to be exposed to within the book. So it's been more, I would say more, my family have been concerned about, okay, you know, the fact that I am, um, exposing myself in this way but as I said I think number one I want to be authentic I want to be true and what I don't want to do is just is paint this squeaky clean picture when that's not the case and to be honest it's understandable too if you really look at my life I should have been in jail I should have probably been someone who's got mental health I should have been someone that probably ended up permanently on drugs um, probably, um, you know, self-harmed. And all these sort of things would not be unusual for a kid who witnessed his mum being shot mm. by the people who he fought. One, should be protecting him, and two, he was aspiring to be like. You know, could you imagine the sort of... Yeah, we haven't mentioned that. I mean, your favourite yeah. shows were the cop shows and you wanted to be a police officer, didn't you? That's right. And, um, and that incident ruined any kind of, you know, chance of that happening for me. Um, I saw the police in a totally different light from that one incident. And it wasn't just because it happened, it was because I was there and I saw that when this officer shot my mum, there was no compassion, there was no empathy, there was no remorse. You had the cheek to shout at me. So, why would I want to be like you? Well, you know, why would I want to be, why, why, why would I want to be like the, pe the, the people who had committed that crime against us? 
So for me, it just shifted my, my, my thought process around that. Um, and I just started to look at the police in a different way. And then I had my own experiences as a teenager that then, you know, cemented that, that, that feeling. Yeah, well, we can talk about those, you know, because some of those are extraordinary as well. But Natalie used a phrase earlier uh, as she was leading to a question where she talked about your quest for justice. And I wondered, do you feel that you ever got justice? Because just factually, we should explain that the officer who shot your mum did face a trial and was acquitted of all charges. So no one's ever been convicted for shooting your mum. But the Metropolitan Police have compensated your family and have apologised to you both verbally and, and I understand in a, in a written format as well. Is that justice? No. Um, I did a talk called Redefining Justice. Um, I did a, a TEDx talk. And the reason why I said about redefining justice, because that's what we had to do. We had to think outside the box and we had to kind of create a, a, a justice, some form of justice for ourselves to allow us to heal from what's, what's happened and allow us to to look at how we move forward so we didn't get justice in 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 in, in the formal way where as far as we were concerned somebody should have paid for what happened to my mom someone should have been penalized someone should have gone to prison for what happened to my mom that didn't happen and I don't, no amount of money could ever fix that no amount of money could ever bring my mum back. And there's no one on this earth who would say, I would swap your life for that money. I would be prepared to witness my mum being shot in front of me, left paralysed, suffered for 26 years before she died, to have that money. No one would do it. Right? So therefore, um, sometimes I, you know, I hear, when I see things written, it, it, it really annoys me that it, you know, in, it would seem like that's any way to compensate for what had happened. Mm. And even for my mum, she, she, got, she got a compensation payout nine years after the incident, which they said was supposed to last for 10 years. To, and it was basically to manage her care. She lived for 26 years. Mm -hmm. So for 15, 16 years of my mum's, um, life was not accounted for and fell on our shoulders. So what is the, what is the moment where something happened in this quest to try and get some sort of resolution that, that helped you and your family process and move on from what happened in any way that you can? Because again, just kind of going back to that, you can obviously talk about it well now and I feel angry still. <laughs> for you and and I'm just kind of curious which was the kind of turning point for you where you could sort of think okay this bit is never going to happen so what is the level that is acceptable for me to be able to move on and honor my mum and my family and not do a disservice to yourself but actually be able to live your own life too and not be angry every single day so for us uh, it was the most important part was was the restorative justice part you know where we went into mediation and we had this sort of restorative justice you could call it a combination of mediation and restorative justice conferencing and that 
when you think about all what we went through and all the whether it was the first criminal trial whether it was us fighting to get to, to get legal aid having the the report the the um internal report being included in the 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 inquest getting that conclusion that and then and then spending another two years fighting with the met for them to accept accountability for us to end up sitting around the table in the end and resolving it right around the table right so imagine that it was as simple as that and it sounds simple but it was very powerful to be able to look them in the eye explain exactly what happened the impact of what happened on my mum and, and us as a family and for them to finally show that remorse and compassion and empathy that they never showed ever from the day that that happened what meant so much to me and my family as part of our healing mm-hmm. and you, you you mentioned that um that photo that, that Natalie referred to earlier of all the kids lined up on the sofa, that actually came back in that mediation meeting, didn't it? Yeah. And reduced Neil Basu, who now I think is a deputy assistant commissioner, isn't he? To, to you know, reducing to, to be moist eyed, should we say, even if he didn't manage to break into full on tears. So in a way, when you're kind of 30 plus years on and that mediation is the key point for you, were you glad that photo was taken, even though at the time it was horrific? Well, it served the purpose in the end. And I think, much like all of what's happened, um, we've managed to turn these negative things around and then make them into positives for ourselves. So it, 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 that was a negative thing that happened where people took pictures of us while we were vulnerable with, without our permission. But yet that was the same picture we was able to use, as you said, to say, look, look what you did. Look what happened to us. And it's like looking at a knife, really. It can be used to stab somebody or it can be used to spread butter or to cut some food up. And it was, it's the same kind of um, analogy, really. It's just looking at what, you know, what we went through. And then now, how do we use that to hopefully create positive change going forward? Can I ask you a question about your brother, Michael? It was Michael who they were looking for. That, that sparked this raid on your house. And throughout the book, there are a number of incidents that involve Michael that you catalogue. So I mentioned one where he turns up to your house and gets you out of your bed as an eight-year-old and takes you joyriding. There's the one at, at your own wedding uh, to Jem where, you know, you have to put your mum to bed because he has left your wedding early, even though he'd been assigned the carer role. There's also an incident where the night before the inquest, you have to ask him to take down a video from Facebook, which... I think in your view could be potentially harmful to, to it. Given that it, it was him they were looking for that sparked the raid, that sparked the shooting. What's your feeling towards your brother now? Are you in touch with him? Do you still talk? And have you ever spoken about that? He didn't come to the inquest, did he? No. Um, so we're amicable and I don't blame my brother for what happened to my mum. Sh- I'm very clear that the police shot my mum and it was their failures which led to that. What I hold Michael accountable for, and I speak about it, and I even speak about it in the book about my father, is them playing, being, having such an absent role and not really being role models to me in my life. 
And so therefore my issues was only about that in a sense where, you know, I don't think any of them really stood by my mum and I don't think any of them really were setting any good example for me as a person. So I, I show that because that's real for me. Again, it's, it, it's part of how, how I was shaped as a person. And I want to give some context and some understanding around that. Yeah, well, I mean, as a father, it resonated with me that you couldn't call your dad, dad. You called mm. him by his first name and you're a father now. I assume your kids call you dad. My kids call me dad. And, and when I read that, that broke my heart almost as much as the shooting itself. Absolutely. And, and again, it was also just to show that, you know, the sh the, what life was like before the shooting. And although um, there was a lot of fun that we had growing up, we were poor. And as a result of being poor, there was lack of opportunities. So I'm sure my brother has his story to tell about why he is the way that he is. I'm sure my dad would have had a story to tell about why he was the way that he was but they never ever explained that to me so all i've got to go by is is the actions and then how that those actions then impacted on me and then forced me to grow up very quickly and then how my life how my life plays out where i'm in conflict because there's times when you you find that you are playing out some of those same behaviors um, and even though you don't like them, that's what you know. So you're having to constantly battle with that and say, I want to be different. I want to show my mum a different outcome. I want my mum to be proud of me. And those are the things that centred me back. I think it's really interesting how you talk about that, but also, you know, earlier you were saying you were wary about what you put into this story about yourself because you know that your kids are going to read this but I think in a way that's kind of the whole point isn't it it's, it's the narrative we tell our children and actually what we want them to learn and whether we're presenting them with some illusion of life or not and that's where it feels even more vital I think that you've been so honest in this can I just ask how old your your children are and, and if it's have, have they approached an age where they can read the book yet or is that in still years to come so uh, my youngest one, she's eight, Ruby Lee, and then I've got Harmony, who's 12, and then I've got a son who's 24 now. So my son, you know, I've been really honest and transparent about my life with my son, and I thought it was very important to do so um, and to get him to understand why I am the way I am today and why I've pushed for, for his life to be different to mine, um, which, he, which he understands. Uh, my, my, my two daughters, they're very mature for their age. <laughs> and they've got a, a great understanding of the story in terms of what happened, what happened to their grandmother, what I've gone through. They've been a part of my journey. It, they just don't know all the, the details. And I've said, I'm at that stage where I'm starting to slowly, you know, break things to them in terms of the detail about, around certain things. So it's a thing that I'm always assessing and seeing, is now a good time to, to, to bring this up? My, my 12 year old says she wants to read the book. So therefore, you know, I'm sure that's gonna, that's gonna bring up loads of stuff for us. Some maybe really difficult conversations that we're gonna have to have, but it, it's important that we, that we do that. Absolutely, and, and you, you, know, you write in the book as well, you bring it right up to date with 
Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd. And, you know, again, I'm sure that's a conversation you've had with your kids, as I have had with mine as well. And they're difficult conversations to have, even though, of course, we come from from different backgrounds on that. But I assume that you find it really important to to explain what's happening and what's going on in terms of how racist a lot of the world still is. Absolutely. When we had some of the protests around Black Lives Matter after George Floyd, I, mean, I brought my two daughters to one of them. And, you know, some people were like saying to me, you know, that's a bit, you know, a bit risky. But it was important for me to do that because, number one, I've always felt indebted to the community for standing up for what happened to my mum. And maybe the events would never be remembered in the same way if they didn't. So that doesn't mean that I condone the violence and the burning down of buildings, but that's not where it started. It, it, people, people stood up because they felt something. They felt like this was wrong and it was an injustice. And they felt like this could have been me. It could have been my sister, it could have been my mother, it could have been my cousin. So that sense of, 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 say, of, of just knowing intuitively that this is wrong and being courageous enough to stand up for it i respect that and so therefore when there's an opportunity for me to to do the same i i do so i show my support and i wanted my daughters to be a part of that to know that you know, there was plaques that had my mom's name on it and for them to see that people still remember that your grandmother went through this and that this this story is so connected to our story. So, and they, and you know, they, they felt empowered by being there. Mm -hmm. We didn't, we didn't stay long and we was on the, you know, on the outskirts, but it was just to give them a sense of, wow, you know, look how much people are coming out in support of our struggles. And it was nice for them to see people of different races coming together around and this one very important cause too. Was there any element to that where you thought, hang on, my mum was shot in 1985, we're now in 2020 and nothing's changed? Oh, of course, there's, there's, there's always that feeling of, it, that, that's the sad part. You sit here and you think to yourself, how could we be in 2020 and I'm hearing someone say the very same words my mum said when she was lying on the floor saying she can't breathe. He was in the exact same position. This, you know, this white police officer is towering over this man. This same thing with my mum. We had the same this white officer towering over my mum with a gun in his hand. And I'm looking at this, and it's just brought me right back into the room. However, I think it's um, it can be damaging if we tell ourselves that nothing's changed whatsoever. Because what we do is rob ourselves, and we rob the pe rob the people of. Uh, from who had fought, who have fought for changes. They may be slight, they may not be enough. We may need to build upon some of those changes, but some things have been done that some people have sacrificed their lives to make those things happen. And I, know, and I think it's important that we recognize that. And I, and, I, and I think it's important that we take strength from it too. Just tell us finally, what's your personal attitude to the police now? Uh, have you had much to do with them recently? Have you, um being stopped while driving or anything like that that happens? Have you had an encounter? Last encounter that I had was a few years ago, actually. Um, I was driving and a cyclist ran into the back of me. And um, 
I got out of the car, cyclist apologised to me, it was 10.30 in the morning. I said to him, are you all right? He said he might have dislocated his thumb. I said, I'm gonna pull, pull, I pull, I'm gonna park my car around the corner, I parked, came back, police officer was there. Anyway, the police officer wouldn't speak to me. He just kept speaking to the cyclist. We are there for about 15, 20 minutes, and then a police car drives up, and he asked his colleague for a breathalyzer kit. So the cyclist looked at me and said, does he think I've been drinking at 10.30 in the morning? And I thought, for some strange reason, I don't think that's for you. So I said to the officer, who's the breathalyzer kit for? He says, you. I said, the cyclist has run into the back of me and you're breathalyzing me. He said, yeah, it's protocol. That's what we have to do, blah, blah, blah. It's the procedure. Fine. I said, if it's not the procedure, it's going to be a problem. So next thing I know, there's about three other, four other police officers that are around. We're in Brixton and a white lady comes over and says, I'm not moving. I'm a witness. So the officer says, why? What are you witness to? She goes, I see this every day. All you do is harass young black men. You, you, don't, you don't do the same to, to, to white men. It's always black men you're harassing. Anyway, they came over with a breathalyzer kit. I said, please show me some respect. We're in the middle of the road. Let's go onto the pavement. Went to the pavement and they were trying to put the thing into my mouth. And I said, I don't know where your hands have been. I'm quite capable of putting it in my mouth myself. That became a thing. Then they said, he's going to arrest me. I said, well, arrest me then. But I'm not going to let you put that thing into my mouth. In the end, one of his colleagues agreed to give me the kit. I then done the test. It was fine. So after about 45 minutes, he then says, oh, let's have a look at the damage of your car. And I said, it's taking you 45 minutes to say that to me. I said, you gave that cyclist a lot of care and attention, rightfully so. But I was also in that accident and you never once said to me, are you okay? So I said to him, are you aware of the history of the community in which you're policing? He said, no, I'm not. So I said, I told him my story. And then he said to me, I'm really sorry. You must have zero confidence in the police, so on and so forth. And I said to him, did you hear what that woman said? So there's a perception already and if you don't learn how to police this community sensitively, knowing the history, then we're just gonna continue having these problems. Now, luckily, I'm old enough and I'm wise enough to communicate with you in a way to get you to understand. When you're young, and this is like the hundredth time you've been stopped and been treated differently, you haven't got that kind of patience. Mm -mm. So he said, oh, I will look at my cam and I will try and learn something from this and so on and so forth, whether he did or he didn't. But it just went, that showed me that even at the age that I am now, right, I'm still seen in a certain way and still dealt with in an unfair way. And it just showed me that there's still a lot of work to do. And I'm willing to be a part of that work. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating and I think you can tell by the pause you've left us both dumbstruck with a lot of the things that you've told us um, so thank you so much for your time we just need to get a couple of recommendations from you as we always do on bestsellers um, any books that you've read or that you've been given recently that you thought yeah mate, I must pass those on to a wider audience um, why I no longer talking to white people about race 
um, Akala's book, which is, is it British Empire? So Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race is by Rennie Edo-Lodge. And that's been that's been the top of the charts for weeks, hasn't it? It has, it has hasn't it? <laughs> it has. Natives is by Akala, Race and Class Native, and the Ruins Native, of an Empire. Natives, that's it, Natives. I should have known that on top of my head. Which shamefully I haven't read yet, but it's on my list of ones to read. Um, what was it about that book that stood out so much for you? It's It's the way that he is able to talk about things that had, has happened in Britain, like really a, a reflection on some of the things that we've been through and how things have been unfair for a very long time. And there were some stories in there that um, don't really get any airplay. They've happened, like there was the um, new crossfires, for instance, that Akalo talks about in the book. And I, and I briefly touch on it in my book as well. And, um, and so there's these things that happen and there's been, never been any justice for them. And it just, you know, we're just having to sort of act like it didn't even happen. So I'm aware that our story, for instance, is one of many, many stories and where it shouldn't be seen as a privilege, but we're privileged enough to have our story heard and have our voice heard. But there's so many other stories of people who have been faced in similar circumstances and never get their voice heard, you know, or have been wore down by, by, worn down by the system and the way that the system works so against you that after a while, you know, you really got to make a choice. Do I carry on at, to the detriment of my health or my mental well-being, Or do I just say enough's enough and I'm just going to get on with my life? And, you know, as much as I'd love to see justice and some recognition for what I've gone through, you know, you're just defeated in that in that process and you believe it's never gonna happen for people like you. So it's these books shed light on some of those stories that, you know, we don't normally hear about in, in you know, and more widely. And I think it's important to our history and, and, it's, and it's a part of British history that we all should know about these stories and these events. And that's how we learn. We've got to learn from the past in order to make the future better. Does all of that mean that you're going to feel duty-bound to write a second book? <laughs> well, um, it's not something that I've actually thought about yet, but um, I would consider, because there are some things even within the book that I touch on, hmm. but I don't really go into detail about. And because there was, you know, the, the book had a particular narrative and, um, you know, there's only so, so many you know, pages in the book that we really just kind of stayed on that beat. But there's so many other um, aspects, other facets that could be explored more and given a, 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 a wider and a better understanding on as well. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on bestsellers uh, and an honour for us. So thank you for making the time to speak to us. I really enjoyed it. The book's incredible and it's a must read. For, from my perspective you have to read this book to gain a greater understanding in um, social history and in our relationship with authority and also in policing by consent and uh, I obviously wouldn't have expected anything else but there's such a humanity that runs throughout the book and empathy which you talk about as well and yeah I think we've obviously heard that today as well so it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you Lee thank you Thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for having me. Thank you. And thanks to the fellow next door who stopped drilling nicely. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs>
I've never experienced anything like that, I have to say, in a recording, because mostly <laughs> you get a bit of ambient noise and people mm. are very forgiving of it. Like we referred once to the fact that on one of the hottest days of the year in 2020, we did a recording and I'd left my window open. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I got a couple of emails from people saying, oh, don't worry about that. Of course you left your window open. It was 30 odd degrees and very forgiving. But that was different level of noise intrusion, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and I felt really awful because, you know, it's sort of sod's law, isn't it, that that uh, noise happens just as Lee is discussing something incredibly emotive yeah the most tender of moments <laughs> i know yeah. hey ho that's life so he dealt with it really well though didn't he yeah. i thought yeah um yeah. you know the other thing i want to say to you or i wanted to ask you is i because mm. again we should point out although natalie and i are friends and we've known each other over 20 years and we yeah. speak regularly obviously we are never in the same place when we record these and so we're relying on seeing each other's expressions on zoom to see what's going yeah. on yeah and, okay, can um, I just say before whatever you're going to say yeah. is, my brain is like, don't reveal innermost secrets about yourself, which is what you always seem to do when Phil asks you questions. So. <laughs> Relax those defences, girlfriend. <laughs> what I was going to say was that when Lee was explaining about the raid and giving us the detail, mm-hmm. that I sensed from you through the Zoom a real anger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also because he was 11 when this happened and I've got an 11 year old child and I I think I probably took myself a bit to what that would be like if she witnessed me being shot and at the same thought realizing that that's probably very unlikely because I'm white and the injustice of that situation and everything that kind of goes with it uh yeah, I think it's I think it's really hard not to empathize so much with Lee's experience. And I cannot imagine, you know, you you know you sort of hear all these stories all the time about kids having to grow up too young and all the rest of it, but something like that happening when you're eleven years old, mm. the impact it then has on mm. the entire rest of your life is immeasurable. Yeah. And I was struck by the the dignity and the intelligence that he's shown. Yeah to pursue this to the nth degree so that he could get justice for his family and what what he felt justice would look and sound like and to get the inclusion of that met report for example at the inquest you know and the battles that you went through and never giving up that resilience in the face of such trauma that's what i was struck by most i think by lee and and by the whole book actually that comes through the book it's really cleverly written this book because although it goes to now and before now and before um you need the history don't you to inform the mm-hmm. present mm-hmm. and it never feels confusing to me that narrative it always feels like, oh okay now i understand why you're telling me that because we're about to move on to this stage of the current story so it's really well done yeah no it's really well done and i think it's you know just as all good books do i think it really makes you think about other aspects of your life you know i've, I've got quite a few friends actually who work for the met and you know it just makes you it just gives you a different perspective, I think, on lots of things. And that's why I enjoy reading so much. Talking of the Met. Yeah. Have you called 101 yet? Why? Have you reported, have you reported any of your neighbours for breaking <laughs> No, I haven't. But then I don't think any of my neighbours have. Um, no, I haven't. Have you? No, I haven't. No, it's just that we did a story on the radio show the other night about how they were getting deluged by calls, which surprised oh, really? me. I have to say. Yeah, they were having to put extra staff on the 101 line to cope with the number of calls. Wow. No, I haven't. But then it's been pretty quiet around my way. Uh, I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know what I do, actually. 
you don't have to worry about it now yeah no I don't I don't I feel like in my head I kind of would initially start with a like a Paddington bear hard stare and then then see what happens next I've got to say for those Mm -hmm. of you watching in black and white Natalie's got an amazing hard stare (laughs) I've seen it a couple of times and even through zoom that was enough it's fairly lethal (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that would do the trick and yeah all fine sorted the best bit of that answer was when you laughed at your own lethal status. <laughs> you proper Bond villain then. Yes, that's yeah, right. It's lethal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's fine. I'm just taking myself back to the happy times of chatting to Linda LaPlante. Me and Linda, I think we could sort out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Say nothing, Governor. <laughs> Sellerspodcast at gmail.com if you want to drop us a line on anything, and we will speak to you very soon.